Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful. Because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome back to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you, as always, so much for tuning in. Let's hear it for a super producer who might as well be a member of the family, Mr. Max Williams. Woohoo. <laughs> all in the family here. No, that sounds weird. That's wrong. That's not what I meant. <laughs> Take it all back. Um, yeah, I don't know. Look, first of all, maybe not trigger warning, I guess, but, you know, I, sometimes on a show called Ridiculous History, we do brush up against topics that aren't inherently ridiculous or they're like sad or just kind of, you know, messed up in some way, shape or form. And then we often follow things like, well, it was a different time. But today we are talking about incest. Uh, Let's just get it out there to, to a degree. And we're not saying like, wow, that's some wacky stuff. These wacky cousin marrying geniuses, historical figures. That's not the take that we're offering up at all. But um. It is an interesting story uh, or an interesting Mm. series of stories, just the same. And uh, yeah, it was a different time. I'm Ben, you're Noel. And today we are talking about people who married their first cousins throughout history. Now, as we said, we wanted a little bit of a disclaimer at the top, and we are going to explore this respectfully because as we'll see uh, throughout the years, there were uh, often a lot uh, there were a lot of social pressures uh, and there were a lot of intervening variables or conditions that will make more sense as we continue look uh, you know and shout out to our research associate max for this there are a lot of people in the world and if you look at it if you've ever done some of those distant cousin quizzes and things like that you know that Humanity is at least somewhat related to each other, every member of it, right? Right. And it increases exponentially the further away you go in, like, cousinship. Uh, But 
We also want to add as a disclaimer, there are very serious proven scientific reasons why you should not marry nor procreate with people who are too closely related to you. And what we're going to see today is that whether you are a world-renowned scientist, a infamous dictator, or uh, an outlaw, <laughs> there are plenty of folks from so many demographics across history who have not just married a cousin, which happens still in the modern day, but married a first cousin, a pretty yeah, immediate relationship. That's the one. And, you know, you, you, did, you did mention that this does still happen from time to time to this day. Uh, but we also historically have massive uh, precedent for this in the form of royalty. You know, I mean, they, they were marrying all kinds of closely related blood relatives in an effort to maintain uh, a semblance of some sort of bloodline. You know, um, and we also know that over time, um, sometimes not very many generations, Marrying within one's family in this way can cause some serious issues. Uh, yeah, I'm thinking birth, of the Habsburg defects, you know, um, problems with you know things like hemophilia, all kinds of issues. Yes, exactly, Ben. The Habsburgs. We're not really talking about royalty today because those are sort of the obvious ones, right? We're talking about folks who you might not think of, uh, like Albert Einstein. Yeah, famous brainiac. A, yeah, had a uh, had a, a theory of relativity that goes outside the world of physics. I'm not walking away from that joke. Uh, he had a turbulent relationship when he married his first cousin. And we want to shout out uh, Kara Goldfarb over at All This Interesting. She said, quote, you don't have to be Einstein to make a marriage work. In fact, you probably shouldn't be. So let's talk about Elsa Einstein. She's often thought of as... Albert's ride or die, you know, his number one person, uh, she knew how to handle this brilliant, at times difficult physicist. She nursed him back to health in 1917 when he got very, very ill. She also, once he became a global celebrity, she was always with him, trotting across the globe. But once you cut past the surface level info and the headlines and all, all that stuff, you see a, a, a darker picture. Uh, so Elsa was born Elsa Einstein on January 18th, 1876. Her father is a guy named Rudolph. He is the cousin of Albert Einstein's father. But uh, it does get a little weirder. Um, her mother and Albert's mother were also related, like about as closely related as two women can be. Uh, they were sisters. Um, and so Elsa and Albert were first cousins. Yeah, that's right. They were first cousins. Some of this yeah. uh, lineage stuff gets makes your head spin a little bit, but um, just, sure. just to make sure uh, we're, yes, in fact, they were first cousins. My brain is still hurting from researching some of the tangents and trivia <laughs> later on. It is rough. It gets rough, uh, but we're in this together. And so when Elsa gets married to Einstein, it's not her first marriage. She actually marries another guy named Max Lowenthal in 1896. And this couple goes on to have three children before they divorce in 1908. And Elsa regains her maiden name at that time. So during her marriage, her first marriage, she's Elsa Lowenthal. After the divorce, she's Elsa Einstein, and she marries Albert Einstein. Now, of course, the couple was aware of their relationship. Having the same last name is, you know, is a bit of a clue. And Einstein also 
had a marriage previous to this. He married a lady named Maliva Maria, a Serbian mathematician in 1903. And it looks like they had a honeymoon period. They were charmed with each other, impressing each other. But if you go back through an archive of letters Einstein wrote during his lifetime, more than 1,400, then it looks that over time, he became detached, aloof, and even a little bit cruel to his first wife, Maliva. That's right. I mean, you know, we often hear about how difficult and at times uh, vicious brilliant human beings can be. Uh, and Albert Einstein was no different. Um, during this period, uh, he was starting to get closer and closer to Elsa. Um, this is 1912 we're talking about here. And uh, he was still married to his first wife, Maria, who he apparently treated abominably. He and Elsa had grown up together, you know, so th there was some fondness there already. You know, you would think familial cousinly fondness uh, that I guess was reassessed uh, in, a, in a somewhat bizarre fashion. Um, but it was only around that time that we mentioned 1912 uh, that they started to develop a kind of a letter writing relationship, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that, that began to eke its way into romantic territory. Yeah, courting via post. and Which was a thing. But, you yep. know, people used to write letters. People, mass, beautiful romances were forged when people couldn't be there face-to-face -face through letters. We have tons of record of this in history. I like uh, Simone de Beauvier. Uh, that's a great correspondence, real K, of course. So Einstein falls sick, like I said earlier, and Elsa shows up. And she takes care of Albert. She nurses him back to health. In 1919, he divorces his first wife. And then he marries Elsa shortly after, in the same year, on June 2nd, 1919. Like, pretty much right after his divorce is finalized. And we've got a quote from him that shows he is a little bit He's not quite ten toes down on this. He says, quote, the attempts to force me into marriage come from my cousin's parents and is mainly attributable to vanity through moral prejudice, which is still very much alive in the old generation. So he's saying they're making me marry her because they think we're living in sin. And that was often a, uh, a prime factor, you know, in... <laughs> What led to people getting married in those days? The idea of uh, making an honest man out of you or whatever, you know, living in sin in the eyes of God and doing right by that. Um, so, yeah, we, we see a lot of uh, marriages that were not desired by both parties as well. Right. Lots of social pressure. And, you know, Albert repeats the same pattern that he did with his first wife over time he becomes increasingly distant from Elsa. He, in fact, has a series of affairs with a number of women, uh, younger women. And even though we know that Elsa's children from her previous marriage thought of old Al as a father figure, it turns out he also kind of had a budding like Woody Allen thing with uh, his eldest stepdaughter, Ilsa. Oh, good. He, he actually thought of, uh, at one point, he was like, I'm, I know I'm engaged to Elsa, my cousin, but I might break it off and propose to her daughter instead. Okay. 
<laughs> wow, Albert Einstein, you know, the more you dig into some of these folks, the the less they deserve to be on the cover of a children's book with a giant head. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, you know what? I mean, it's theory of relativity indeed. Yeah, it's interesting. But again, like, you know, the idea of becoming isolated and becoming distant. And, you know, we see this with artists. We see this with, you know, folks who are just obsessed and consumed by their work. And and it, it, again, not to psychoanalyze Albert Einstein on a podcast, but like I could see how a guy like that would see a woman as someone that was there for his gratification. You know, someone that is there to distract him from his stressful existence and his toiling, his, you know, mental toilings, you know. It happens. It happens a lot, you know, with very driven people. Uh, Isaac Asimov did not have a happy marital life. A lot of authors didn't, and a lot of scientists didn't, you know. And at the same time, nothing happens in a vacuum, as we always say, it's the 1930s. Let's fast forward to there. Anti-Semitism is on a dangerous rise, and a lot of right-wing groups start targeting Albert Einstein. So eventually, he and Elsa say, we're going to have to relocate the family. It's 1933. Things are not looking good in Germany, so we're going to move to the United States. And they put down roots in Princeton, New Jersey, the, the um, disasters keep coming because shortly after they move, Elsa gets news that her daughter, Ilsa, has developed cancer. She was living in Paris at the time, so her mom goes to France to, to be with her in her final days. This is definitely a terminal condition. She comes back to the U.S. in 1935, and Elsa now has health issues, medical conditions of her own, heart and liver problems that just keep getting worse. And what does Albert do? He closes the door to his study figuratively, and he keeps click-clacking away on his work. And sadly, Elsa passed away on December 20th of 1936 in that home in Princeton, New Jersey. And, you know, for as much of a SOB is is as uh, um, Einstein comes off in the story. It is reported that he was genuinely, you know, at a loss over over her passing. Um, and uh, a, a, a family friend, a guy named Peter Buckney, um, said it was the first and only time he saw Albert Einstein cry. Mm -hmm. And you know, everybody knows that. Any relationship, no matter how beautiful, can have a lot of ups and downs, and it can be difficult to maintain any long-term relationship. You know, you really have to show up every day for it. And we're not saying, obviously, that Elsa and Albert had the perfect marriage, but it does show us that he had emotional difficulties, right? A brilliant physicist, but not a super emotionally aware person. And we know this because of a letter he wrote to the son of one of his friends. Uh, his friend Michelle Besso had passed away, and Albert wrote this. What I admire in your father is that for his whole life, he stayed with only one woman. That is a project in which I grossly failed twice. Wow. Way to make it about you, bro. That's I mean, really weird. That is a little weird. Yeah, there's no question. Uh, and again, shout out to Kara Goldfarb uh, for all that's interesting who hipped us to a lot of these uh, very interesting facts about, you know, ultimately a great man, not necessarily a great husband, you know. 
Yeah, and to jump in here, I mean, so when I was writing this, there's a, a lot of people who marry their first cousins. So mm-hmm. I try to pick th- people who are kind of closer to us in history and also ones that I could have. There's plenty of research materials about, like sure. some of these people you can't find stuff about. When I picked these three people, I did not expect to be grossed out the most by Albert Einstein. Of these three, I'm like, this isn't going to be the one that grosses me out the most. <laughs> well, uh, don't worry, Max, right? As you know, we'll continue. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Snagajob. Snagajob is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs on-demand, temp-to-hire, part-time, or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Mint Mobile. You know, Ben, I got to say, one of the best parts of a spring cleaning is that post-clean clarity you get where you're like, man, how have I been living like this? What's wrong with me? <laughs> you're right, Noel. It's, it's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless when Mint Mobile has phone plans for 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. That's mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. We will continue by going to the Middle East, uh, the infamous, infamously bad romance novelist and also uh, dictator of Iraq for some time, Saddam Hussein. Uh, Max, I see he got a he got a pull quote from me here. One of history's few truly bad guys. I agree with that. We have so many strange things to talk about when it comes to Hussein. He did write a copy of the Quran in his own blood, for instance. Uh, he also he also married his cousin. 
He sure did. And Saddam Hussein's a guy that kind of didn't really have many guardrails on the things that he felt that he could or could not do. That's sort of the way of the of the dictator. And, and you know, it's funny. A lot of these, I feel like these these individuals we're talking about today could be their own episode of Behind the Bastards. Uh, pretty sure Saddam's got a few. Um, yes, yeah. yeah, but uh, it's true. We don't know a whole lot, though, about the first marriage uh, that Saddam Hussein had uh, to uh, Sajida Talfa. Um, We get this from Gina DeMuro over at All That's Interesting as well. Um, Quote here from this piece, given that it is hard to separate the fact from the hearsay, often the little that is known concerning his wife is just as disturbing as the worst rumors, which is often the case, once again, for folks like this. A lot of smoke. Um, probably an awful lot of fire, too. So uh, Saddam Hussein and uh, Sajida Talfa uh, had an arranged marriage that was um, arranged by their parents uh, when they were only 10 years old. This was agreed upon. Sajida was also uh, Saddam's uncle's daughter, which uh, by the whole cousin math thing uh, comes back to first cousins. Right, yeah. And we... Do have to say, you know, in a, in a place where people have arranged marriages being related in some way to uh, to your spouse or your would be spouse was not considered necessarily a bad thing or a, a deal breaker. Oftentimes, arranged marriages were negotiations between branches or clans of a family, right, to further solidify some of the things we mentioned earlier, you know, influence lineage and so on. So. The couple gets hitched around 1963. Even today, people aren't sure what the exact date was. They did go on to have five different children. And by most accounts, Sajida, who had been a school teacher before marrying Saddam, she liked the the marriage. She liked some of the side benefits because her husband was high ranking in the government, of course, and she enjoyed the social status. She was flexing with designer clothes from Europe, wearing jewelry. She dyed her hair blonde and she became the first lady of Iraq, right? So one woman who met her said, she aspired to be light-skinned and coated her face with so much powder that it looked like, quote, someone had thrown flour on her. That's a pretty, pretty rude, body-shamey thing to say. Well, yeah, yeah, it's not great. Um, but she wasn't super pleasant either. I, that's, that is that is what you hear. Also, Ben, um, I believe the of the five children they had, two of them were like the worst ones, like the ones that you heard, like, you know, I think whipping the losing soccer team on the bottoms of their feet, Uday and Kuse, uh, mm-hmm. during that period, you know, when Saddam oh, they, was they in They were power. awful. Just yeah, absolute, absolute monsters. And I think there's there's, there's a couple of um, dramatized, you know, kind of biopics about them, if I'm not mistaken. It's like called like the devil's something or other. Hold on, let me That's go. right. Yeah. He, um, I, I know I did some research on Uday in particular, and he was just absolutely like a King Jeffrey from Game of Thrones, that level of cartoonishly evil. And he had the you're you're talking about the national football team. That's Whenever right. they lost a match, he would ki- he would have them arrested and tortured. He yeah. did that with uh, Olympic athletes representing Iraq as well. Now that has nothing to do with the fact that his parents were cousins. No, no, no. He's just no, so no. bad that we're going to mention it. <laughs> yeah, very bad. The, the the film I was talking about, by the way, is called The Devil's Double. It came out in 2011, and I it, is, that, it is about yeah. um, a it's about body doubles, body right? doubles exactly the body double or political detail 
decoy for Uday Hussein, uh, who is played in the film by Dominic Cooper, uh, who plays both Uday and uh, Latif Yahia, who is the double. I would like to see this film. It has an incredible poster, by the way, um, where it's like Uday sitting in a, a golden throne and everything's gold and he's completely painted gold head to toe. It's a really striking image. It reminds me of something like David LaChapelle would do. I did see The Devil's Double. I I enjoyed it. It was during my, uh, I can't remember what project it was for. Nihilistic was film it. viewing period. I, I was researching, <laughs> I can't remember which project it was for. I was researching a lot of uh, dictators at the time, all of whom have really interesting and, and disturbing stories. <laughs> Saddam is no different. Oh, shopkeepers in Baghdad, by the way, were very scared of Saddam's wife mm-hmm. because she... <laughs> Refused to pay full price for anything. She's apparently quite vindictive, and um, opponents of the regime said she was just as violent and greedy as her husband. But Saddam controls the press, you know, and he and his forces go out of their way to make sure anything about his family just shows him in the best light ever, a super doting father, a very committed husband. Uh, There's an interview in 1978 where he says, the most important thing about a marriage is that the man must not let the woman feel downtrodden simply because she is a woman and he is a man. That's pretty cool to say, right? That's a very, I think that is a very human and realistic thing to say but how much of those you know propaganda statements like how true were they when the cameras weren't rolling but again back to dictators they also you know they they like to both f around and and find out um but they don't really have to reap any consequences and when i say f around i just mean you know sleep around um it's pretty common open secret that anybody at that level of power, uh, absolute power, is going to do whatever that person wants to do uh, in terms of having multiple partners. And Saddam was no exception. Despite that rosy image that he would have had the press portray him uh, as those those rose-colored glasses, you know, of him as the doting father, the family man, and all that, um, not the case. Uh, the marriage was largely for show. And Saddam uh, carried on numerous affairs, one mistress in particular that uh, truly was kind of his number one, uh, Samira Shabander. Yeah, yeah. And they were both already married to other people. That didn't stop them from having a secret wedding in 1986. And he and Shabandar started appearing publicly in the late 1980s. Shajida is super unhappy about this, uh, as is the rest of the family, including Saddam's brother-in-law and uh, Saddam's first cousin due to the uh, nature of the marriage. Uh, They were talking about dishonor. Yeah, I guess that's my question, Ben, is like, why do that? Like, why actually have a double marriage? Is it literally just because you can? Because yeah, no it's one's classic stop narcissism, mm-hmm. I would say. It's classic, rules shouldn't apply to me. I am the main character of everything. Um, and that's, I mean, that's a very simplistic way to put it, but the, there it is. He clearly did not feel bound by mores or by the strength of his word and vows. Uh, this guy, Saddam's brother-in-law, a guy named Adnan Kayarala, uh, and we are not native speakers here. Thank you for bearing with us. This guy is complaining a little too much. He's starting to contradict the super happy, faultless image Saddam spent so much time building. And so Adnan 
dies in a whoosh, whoosh, helicopter crash, uh, <laughs> a freak helicopter crash. It's uh, it's a freak crash because uh, Saddam's bodyguards plant explosives on the chopper. Yeah, this is known, right, Ben? This is not yes, just conjecture. this is confirmed. Okay, yeah. cool. Uh, yeah, Saddam's bodyguards did admit that they planted explosive devices on the helicopter uh, under order from Saddam himself, of course. They weren't just doing it as a little, maybe I'll get an attaboy here. Of course, during the Gulf War, as we know, a lot of members of, of the Hussein family had to leave Iraq, um, but they came back after it concluded. Um, and uh, there was a period during this time that Sajida had to give up her lap of luxury kind of existence. But then she ultimately had to do it, you know, for real in 2003. Yeah. Yeah, that's because this was just before the bombing of Baghdad, uh, like, you know, like Outcast talks about. And she, according to the reports, she sought asylum in Britain with two of her daughters, and their official applications were never received. But, of course, the British government is aware of her past, and they went public with the following declaration. They said, our country is under no obligation to give asylum to people who have taken part in human rights abuses. They're saying she's not an innocent. She's not a refugee. She actively participated in some horrific things. And another point that came up with this was that she was living in the lap of luxury. She had a very opulent life during her heyday, and all this wealth they accrued came at a tremendous, profoundly disturbing cost to people of Iraq who were being thrown in prison by a police state, uh, were often living in crushing poverty. So their argument was even if she was not directly involved in torture and murder carried out by the regime, all the wealth she had was blood money. Right, and she was... <laughs> I mean, look, we can't really we can't really attest to the exact levels of like culpability or, you know, what she knew when she knew it. It's tough to get exact there or even uh, rough, but likely, you know, living in that environment, it was known. <laughs> and I keep saying that Game of Thrones style, but, you know, I mean, it's not. It's not difficult to figure out what's happening and, and where uh, this wealth is coming from if you're paying even a small amount of attention. Yeah, I don't think she was surprised, right, if you had told her what the regime was doing. I don't think it would have been news to her. She's very much, a, if not a willing participant, willing to profit from those acts of inhumanity. And Okay, we, we like Max set it up, we're talking about three today. We didn't want to end on a complete downer, Game of Thrones villain style. So let's go to uh, a very famous person in the mythos of America. Let's go to Jesse James. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Snagajob. 
Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand, temp to hire, part time, or full time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a job's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What was that... uh was it the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford? Yeah, cool film with a yeah. great soundtrack by Nick Cave and uh in a long name. Who's the other guy? Um Warren Ellis, not the comic book writer, but the uh bearded mandolin violin guitar playing outlaw countryman that that hangs out with Nick Cave all the time. Really really cool soundtrack. Uh, and then it's, it's a great film as well. Um but yeah, Jesse James uh, Pew Pew, in case you missed it, was the sound of his six guns going off because that guy was a real ace shooter. He also was a real violent dude. And we're going to talk about this phenomenon in an episode uh, coming up later pretty soon about how pirates became prolific in the Caribbean. This guy wanted to join up in the Civil War. So he was just a teenager when he connects with Confederate guerrilla forces in 1864. And at the close of the war, he never really stops, basically, pillaging. Uh, He knows that the Confederates lose the Civil War, and he becomes an outlaw. And so he's out there knocking over banks and trains and stagecoaches, real Red Dead Redemption 2 style. 
Yeah, I mean, and like you said, Ben, he was such a young man when he kind of began this life. It makes sense that he would just kind of, you know, stay the course. Um, and he also had some kind of familial influences that we're going to get into shortly. But uh, according to a biography uh, from American Experience, Jesse was born in Clay County, Missouri on September 5th of 1847. His parents, uh, Zerelda, which is a great name, and Robert James um, were hemp farmers. Okay. But okay. they own slaves. All right, well, okay, that's a dang it. <laughs> oh, okay. I, know, I, I know, I know. I mean, like, and hemp, you know, people, I joke. Um, hemp was a very, very popular uh, cash crop because it was, you know, used to make incredibly uh, strong ropes. In fact, a lot of the ropes in ships and even in theaters, for example, like they're referred to as hemp's still to this day. It's sort of like an old-timey term for like really strong rope because in the old days, hemp was a very uh, available and popular material for, for making these. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, as as we always want to point out, this was not the kind of this was not the kind of plant that you would smoke. No. It was, as you said, mainly for industrial uses, making rope, making fiber, uh, sometimes for clothing and so on. So they grow up on this hemp farm. Like you said, Jesse and his older brother, Frank, watch the Civil War erupt, and they decide they're going to march off from Clay County, Missouri, to fight for the Confederate cause. At this point, Jesse James is still probably too young to go to war, uh, but he tells his parents, Robert James and his mom, Zerelda, look, I'm going to go. I want to fight for the Confederates. Zerelda's full name, by the way, is Zerelda Elizabeth Cole James Sims Samuel. I'm sorry. Why, why are we telling you that? Uh, because we want you to make up a silly song about it. And also because this will come into play with the, uh, <clears throat> with the cousin coupling later. As we talked about, you know, with some uh, kind of familial bonds, perhaps leading to a sense of uh, of righteous indignation on the part of young Jesse James, Uh, his brother, you know, going off and supporting a band of pro-Confederate militiamen, you know, guerrillas, actually brought down the iron fist of the Union on Jesse and his family. Jesse uh, and his stepfather were beaten and tortured for information by these folks because of what uh, what Frank had done. Yeah, and this punishment, this torture, which it very much was, may have been the spark that led Jesse ultimately to join a group of guerrillas led by a guy named Bloody Bill Anderson in the spring of 1864. He's just 16, but he's seen things no 16-year-old should ever have to see. And so he joins uh, like Blood Meridian style and propagates this violence. They terrorize pro-union folks, sympathizers uh, across the Missouri countryside Jesse James participates in a lot of deeply unclean stuff, including the Centralia Massacre, in which 22 unarmed Union soldiers and a hundred other Union soldiers are utterly butchered. He is bathed in blood, right? He is baptized uh, into a life of incredibly violent activity. And, you know, when you look at these biographies, like we mentioned, PBS's American Experience, these horrible formative events created the man he would become when he grew up. 
Yeah, that's right. And uh, at this point, he he, he starts kind of canoodling a little bit with uh, a woman who would become his wife, uh, nicknamed Z. Mims, also known as, uh, these names might be familiar to you, Zerelda Amanda Mims. I kind of um, like the internal rhyme. I, it's a very good one. Uh, born on July 21st, 1845 in Logan, Kentucky, to uh, Pastor John, which I love. I just don't call him Pastor John. Pastor John W. Mims and uh, Mary Mims. And the last name Mims is just very charming to me for some reason. Yeah, Mary Mims, Mary James Mims, rather. Uh, and Zerelda was one of 12 children that they had together. And um, her mother was Robert James's sister, right? Robert yeah. James, father of Jesse James' sister. Let's do the cousin math real quick. People, right, okay, right. where are we at? Cousin math sounds like a cool down south hip-hop beat. But uh, this... <laughs> They, they're aware of this, by the way. Are Jesse, we at first? We're at first, right? First cousins. Yeah, yeah they're okay, first okay, cousins. Uh, Jesse and... First cousins Z, is the easiest cousin math, by the way. Yeah, Jesse and Z uh, are very well aware of their familial connection, their relationship, but they still fall in love uh, while Jesse is living temporarily with his aunt and uncle in 1865 in Missouri. The couple gets engaged, and the engagement lasts nine years. During this time, our buddy Jesse is an out-and-out outlaw. Uh, the James Younger Gang, it was called. They're in full swing. Eventually, amid all the crime, they get married at uh, Z's sister's home in Kearney, Missouri. This is on April 24th, 1874. And fast forward about a year, a little more than a year, Z uh, has her first child, Jesse Edward Tim James, fellow August baby, shout out, bro, August 31st, 1875. Uh, the couple has twins later, uh, just like three years later, February 28th, 1878. Uh, however, there's a tragedy. The twins are stillborn, or according to some accounts, they survive for a little bit. But they're they they pass away within twenty four hours of being born. Um, you know, of course, infant mortality very high at this time in American history. Eighteen seventy nine, the next year, Z has a daughter. She's named Mary Susan James. She survives, and she actually outlives the James Younger gang. Right. Yeah, the James and Younger gang, um, not to be confused with the uh, incredible, uh, I believe, a funk band, James Gang. Isn't that, wasn't that a funk band? What kind of music did James Gang play? Sorry. Uh, rock band, James James Gang, American rock band from Cleveland, Ohio, formed in 1966. Uh, go Cleveland, Cleveland rocks. Um, yeah, that's right. The James uh, Younger gang stopped being active when one of the Younger brothers, Last capital name. Y, yep, were captured uh, uh, during a raid in Northfield, Minnesota. Around that hive of scum and villainy, Northfield, Minnesota. Gosh, they're all so damn polite <laughs> over there, drinking their milk and eating their cheeses, their fine cheeses. Uh, that's Wisconsin. But Minnesota, they like, they like a good cheese in, in Minnesota as well. Um, so Jesse decided to start up a new gang, the James Gang. Yeah. Oh, burst of creativity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like it, though. The it's fun. Um, and they did continue a robbing and a pillaging and, uh, you know, holding up trains and the like. And on September 7th of 1881, near Glendale, Missouri, um, they had their last stand. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, in terms of not like death, but like the last big, big heist. Yeah, one last job. So they hold up this train, and then Jesse says, we're going to move our family to a different town, get away from the heat a bit. It's St. Joseph, Missouri. That's where they settle under uh, Jesse's assumed name. He calls himself Tom Howard. He has a $10,000 reward over his head. So they they have to try to lie low or lay low. And Z tries to talk Jesse into living the square life. You know what I mean? Like get, mm. getting a solid job, you know, maybe go to church once in a while. And Jesse Tom says, Howard's a good square name, by the way. Yeah, I would say. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. And Jesse says, you know what, hon? You're right. I am definitely going to settle down and have a square life right after one last bank robbery. Oh, how's, how's it going to go, Ben? Is it going to go well? Is it going to go gonna well? Go, uh, it depends on what side of the robbery you're on, right? Yeah. Uh, so he's planning this robbery. This is so, such a trope. One last job. He hangs out with Charles and Robert Ford, or Bob Ford, to his, uh, to his friends. That coward. And, mm-hmm, and while they're planning this robbery, Bob kills Jesse James on April 3rd, 1882. Z and her children are in the kitchen when the fatal gunshot occurs. And the kid, Jesse Jr., runs into the living room. He finds his father on the floor, uh, clearly has been shot in the head. Z begins to scream. The little girl, Mary, starts crying. This is just an, an absolutely horrific situation. Z is on her knees trying to staunch the blood, but it is far, far too late. Bob uh, or Robert Ford may have been a coward, but he was a good enough shot at close range. Close range, exactly. But I always picture, or at least maybe it's depicted often in Westerns, like someone will get a headshot sometimes, right? And then not instantly die or have like the whole side of their head blown off. If it's with like a maybe a lower caliber pistol, Obviously, shotgun's a different story, but were handguns, like, less powerful in those days? Could you be more likely to get winged or even just, like, you know, even we hear about people surviving headshots sometimes in these days. Sure. There are a lot of variables, you know what I mean? There's also not a lot of empty space in the human body. So even even a weak caliber is going to is going to do some damage. It's a good question, because there are there are some pistols that were pretty strong. And then there's some other ones that you would think were maybe a little more lightweight, but that term shouldn't even apply because guns can always be dangerous, you know? So uh, we could probably do an entire episode about Jesse and Bob's relationship. Uh, It does make me want to rewatch that film, you know? I've honestly never seen it and I would very much like to. I think I'm going to put it on my list. It's great. I enjoyed it. I enjoy it. If you're a history buff, which I guess all three of us are, uh, then you'll enjoy yeah, it. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> History's okay. It's mids. Three out of five, I give history. But uh, when Jesse dies, a lot of people who are aware that he is not really Tom Howard, uh, and a lot of people in the larger United States, they say, well, this guy committed so many robberies. I bet his widow is set for life. But that wasn't the case. She was in a really dire strait. The only stuff they owned, they had like some a little bit of leftover stolen jewelry. They had some weapons. And then they had the things families have. Photos of each other. You know, nice letters. Here's a blanket. I knit you when you were but a wee child. So they've got a lot of debt. And pretty soon they sell almost everything in the household at an auction 
to pay their creditors, and Z and the kids have to move in with Z's brother in Kansas City. And as is often the case uh, in these types of situations, it's the children who really get uh, the, the the rough end of it. Um, Z did not emerge from the death of her husband, Jesse, unscathed, despite not being harmed physically. Uh, she suffered from serious depression and anxiety, uh, crippling her ability to take care of her kids. Uh, she wore black all the time and apparently never changed out of this black garb. She did not remarry. She became something of a hermit. Um, Jesse James Jr. had to essentially, much earlier than any child should, become the primary earner for the household at the age of 11 to take, to take care of his ailing mother and his, uh, his young sister. And she, Z was, in her defense, a woman of integrity in some regards. She refused for the rest of her life any offers to publish books or give insight into the criminal career of Jesse James, who is already becoming larger than life posthumously. He's becoming part of American mythology, and she could have made their lives easier if she capitalized on on the activities of her late husband, but she didn't. And so she passed away on November 13th, 1900 in Kansas City. She was buried in a cemetery, Mount Olivet in Kearney, Missouri. And about 18 months later, people exhume her husband and move him from his original gravesite on the James family farm to place his remains next to her. And you can find those graves today the next time you're in Kearney, Missouri. We promised you not a bummer ending, didn't we, y'all? Uh, well, we, we were going to deliver on that with some tangents and trivia, some sort of nuggety little stories of, uh, of folks who fancied their cousins quite a bit. Um, and I think these ones, we should lighten up the mood a little bit because, man, you know, dying in despair, wearing all black and having your young 11-year-old son have to take care of you for the rest of your life ain't exactly the, uh, the cheery ending that was promised. Yeah, let's let's talk a, a little bit about something uh, something Max you found here where you said, "Wow, private secretaries to the president sure love their cousins." It's a very specific uh, font of knowledge that we're we're about to explore. Uh, I want to give a shout out to nominative determinism and a guy named Samuel L. Gouverneur, uh, G O U V E R N E U R. That like a fancy governor, gouverneur. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a it's a governor, but it's six dollars more at got the it. counter. Got it, got it. Our buddy Sam is the private secretary for a guy who his his daddy uncle and fifth president in U.S. history, James Monroe. Ben, I absolutely love that you said daddy uncle because this is just gets so confusing because it's his actual uncle, not by blood, but James Monroe was married to Elizabeth Monroe, who was Samuel Governor's mom's sister. So his aunt by blood, uncle by marriage, but his dad or daddy or dad-in-law because Governor married Maria Hester Monroe, the daughter of Elizabeth and James Monroe. But uh, this gets even weirder when you start hearing all the names and also how utterly confusing all this crap is. 
Samuel L. Gouverneur. Uh, his mother was uh, named Hester uh, Gouverneur. Um, his wife, uh, once they actually did get married, was Maria Hester Gouverneur. It's confusing, extra confusing, as you mentioned, Max, when researching a lot of this stuff. It gets a little quagmire-y. Um, so uh, Maria Hester Gouverneur is not to be confused with his second wife, Mary Diggs Gouverneur. Totally different. <laughs> totally different, right? And Sam's sister's maiden name was Maria Charlotte Gouverneur. Two of his children were named Samuel Lawrence Gouverneur, Jr. and James Monroe Gouverneur. Uh, also, shout out, shout out to Max in the research brief who called Samuel L. Gouverneur America's number two most famous Samuel L. Moving on to John Adams II, not to be confused with our boy John Quincy Adams, uh, who Max you refer to as the original sequel. Explain. Because there's John Adams, then there's John Quincy Adams, which is his son, and then there's John Adams II. So John Adams II is really kind of John Adams III, mm-hmm. but he's not. Also, just to give you a heads up, it's really hard to find information about John Adams II because you type it into a search engine, it just comes up with John Adams, second president in American history. <laughs> Max with the facts. Indeed. Uh, John Adams was, in fact, the second president in American history um, and uh, was uh, the successor to James L. Governor, uh, holding the position of private secretary to John Quincy Adams. Uh, John Adams II was the second son of John Quincy Adams and Louisa Catherine, uh, nay Helen Adams, uh, with an older brother named George Washington Adams. Get out of here. And a younger brother named Charles Francis Adams. Uh, which this later is like they, a Gabriel Garcia Marquez novel. It's, it's absurd. Later, they popped a senior onto there just to make things less confusing, more confusing. You be the I judge. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know at this point. But all the way the cadence uh, as as you're talking about that makes me think this is a situation where you could make a really confusing school children's song that's totally. supposed to help you to remember, but just becomes increasingly convoluted. Let's put They Might Be Giants right on it. Yeah, there we go. Uh, we, for, we forgot to say, uh, why is private secretary important? Secretary back then does not mean the same thing as secretary often means now. The private secretary in this day and age was a position that was kind of expected to be based on nepotism. The Your private secretary was usually a direct close family member filling in. Uh, and as, you know, as Max points out, it's also a position that seemed to have a lot of first cousin marriers. That is a patented Williams Three phrase. Straight. <laughs> so, so, okay, no, he did a beautiful job outlining the relationship here. John Adams, too, is becomes this private secretary for the entirety of his father's presidential career, starting in 1825, ending in 1829. And then somewhere along the way, 1828, he marries his wife, Mary Catherine Helen, at the White House. Super fancy. Johnny and Mary had known each other for a while because uh, when Mary Catherine Helen's parents died— Mary Catherine Helen was a child, and she moved in with her mother's sister, whose name was Louisa Catherine 
Helen Adams. To make everything a lot worse, immediately all three Adams brothers started uh, an intense competition to win Mary's hand, and they aggressively courted their cousin. First cousin. First cousin. And this is these are just a few examples. This goes on, uh, but as as we said, everybody, uh, you know, it can be confusing to keep track of all the individuals, especially as the names get similar, and it can be difficult today for people uh, often to trace their own familial relationships. That's why there is a, there was at least a dating app in Iceland. You guys heard about this that would tell you whether or not you were related to someone you were trying to date. Uh, do you guys know the uh, SNL uh, it's like Irish dating show? I think it's uh, Bill Hader is like The Bachelor, and it's uh, A.D. Bryant, uh, Kate McKinnon, and Cecily Strong are like the, the three like bachelorettes. And it turns out that two of them are related to him, yeah. and that actually is a benefit. Like, A.D. Bryant's the one that's not related to him, so he, she's just kind of eliminated off quietly. Right. Yeah, that's, that's where I'm. That's where my brain's going with us right here. And again, you know, as we said at the top, we're not here to vilify people or to you know to make a mockery of them in this regard. But it turns out there are a lot of prominent historical figures that did in fact marry their first cousins, from outlaws like Jesse James to groundbreaking scientists like Albert Einstein. Because at the end of the day, they're all human and humans are inherently fallible. But uh, Noel, speaking of fallibility, I think we did okay on this one. We held our own. <laughs> Thanks, Max. I don't think we fallibated. No. Wow. I'm I'm salivating thinking of how little we fallibated. Okay. I, I think we've uh, we've all collectively gone a little insane from uh, from naming and cousin math fatigue. But thanks for bearing with us, y'all, ridiculous historians out there. Uh, and thank you, Max, for this incredible and brain-shattering research brief. And thanks to you, Ben. Behind the curtain, guys. Behind the curtain. Behind the gherkin. Yeah, there's a lot of gherkin in this episode. It t- This brief took an extra two weeks for me to get done because once I started touching Adam's family, which the Adam's family is just full of inbreeding. They're creepy. They're it's ooky. so creepy. Yeah. Every time I opened it up and I started researching, it broke my brain. And I just had to stop. Well, thank you for your service, Max. Uh, and also thanks to Jonathan Strickland, a.k.a. The Quister. Thanks to Christopher Asiotis, Eve's Jeffcoat here in Spirit. Noel, of course, thanks to you. Are you a... Uh, Excited about this weird pirate episode? Oh, gosh. Arr, matey. <laughs> boy, 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 am I ever. Uh, see you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. 
this time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.